Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about the treatment of sickle cell disease and other blood disorders with Dr. Lila Van Doren. Dr. Van Doren is an assistant professor of medicine in hematology at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. Lila, maybe we could start off by you telling us a little bit more about yourself and what it is you do. So I am a, um, a sickle cell specialist, and I take care of patients who have sickle cell disease. I also am an expert in patients who have abnormal or heavy uterine bleeding and iron deficiency anemia. So let's start with talking a little bit more about sickle cell disease. Um, Some of our audience might know a little bit about this, but many might not. Can you tell us a little bit more about what exactly sickle cell disease is and how prevalent that is? I mean, many people think of this as being a disorder that often occurs in in the African subcontinent as opposed to here in the U.S. How How prevalent is it here? So sickle cell disease affects around 100,000 Americans, and yes, it tends to be the majority African Americans. Uh, It is the most common monogenic disease worldwide, monogenic meaning, excuse me, most common monogenic blood disorder worldwide, monogenic meaning one single mutation causes the disease and the sequelae of sickle cell disease. And the majority of patients living with or people living with sickle cell disease is on the continent of Africa, most commonly sub-Saharan Africa. Um, But in the U.S., about 1 in 13 African Americans is born born with sickle cell trait. And, And tell us more about what sickle cell trait is. Sure. So sickle cell disease requires two copies, one from the mom, one from the dad. A sickle cell trait is one copy of the hemoglobin S that causes sickle cell disease. And when a patient has one copy of it, they do not have sequelae of the disease. But if they have a child with someone else who has sickle cell trait, then there's a 50% chance that the child will be born with sickle cell disease. And so when people who have sickle cell trait, you mentioned that they they don't have the sequelae of the disease. Um, so, So talk a little bit more about what the sequelae are. Sure. So in patients who have sickle cell disease, the hemoglobin, which is the oxygen-carrying protein inside the red blood cells, becomes sticky and it sticks together and it stacks up on each other, creating the sickled shape. And red blood cells can't last that long in the body. The uh, normal uh, lifespan of the red blood cell is, is around 125 days. In those with sickle cell disease, it's around three weeks. And so what we get is early breakdown of the red blood cells. When this occurs, there is release of toxic substances. Not only that, the sickle shape of the red blood cells does not allow them to pass easily through the 
the blood vessels. And they get stuck in the blood vessels. And this results in organ damage. So any and every organ in the body can be damaged. But the most common presentation for sickle cell disease is pain. And acute pain is uh, what we call vaso-occlusive crisis. So, so talk more about that. What kinds of pain might people experience with this? Sure. So the most common presentation to the ER in, with patients who have a vasoclusive crisis could be pain in the arms, pain in the legs, pain in the back, pain in the chest. Um, really could be pain anywhere. Patients can have some swelling of the joints and there really is no good marker of pain in patients who have sickle cell disease. And so it's really hard to um, uh, measure someone's pain adequately. And historically, what we do in the medical community is ask somebody their pain on a scale of 1 to 10. And the majority of the time, a patient who's coming in to the ER for care because of a vasoclusive crisis, they're going to be at a 10 at least. Um, and so over time, the community has been doing a lot more education, educating providers and patients on how to treat patients' pain adequately when they come in for a vasoclusive crisis. And I think that the biggest barrier to adequately treating pain has been bias. And so there's been a lot of education that's been done throughout the um, the sickle cell community and just working with the healthcare system uh, to adequately treat patients' pain. What do you mean by that? What do you mean the greatest barrier to adequate pain control is bias? Sure. So since we don't have a, an, a, a good or an adequate measure of pain, there is no objective measure, what we're left with is believing the patient when they say that they're in pain. And often patients with sickle cell will develop chronic pain syndromes from the from the damage that sickle cell does to the body over time and so when you have a patient who is the majority are african american and they're on chronic opiates and they come in with an acute crisis um, it, it's it's often thought that they are pain seeking and so i think especially with the opioid epidemic providers, we are very vigilant in trying to make sure a patient is is not there just seeking pain medication. And, and so a, a lot of times the pain medication can be withheld from patients thinking that they are just uh, drug seeking. Is sickle cell one of the genetic syndromes that is routinely screened for? In other words, do people routinely know whether or not they have sickle cell trait or sickle cell disease? So a hemoglobinopathy screen, which is the way that we test for uh, sickle cell disease in this country, is done with every newborn. I think, you know, some uh, providers are not required to tell um, patients or parents that their children have sickle cell trait, but they are required to have the disease. And I think providers are also, um, if, if we are not educated enough to understand that sickle cell trait can still have, um, can still have effects on 
the offspring, if they were to marry somebody else or have a child with someone else who has sickle cell trait and produce sickle cell disease, then they think that, well, there's no sequelae of it to the patient, so we don't need to reveal it. And patients will go throughout their entire lives not knowing that they have sickle cell trait um, until they have a child that has sickle cell disease, and then they come to find out that they have the trait. Sometimes um, I see patients who are in their 40s or 50s who have sickle cell disease and never knew that they had sickle cell disease. The majority of the time, these patients are born in other countries or come from the islands such as Jamaica. And they tend to have a milder form of sickle cell disease, which is how it goes undiagnosed. And so if a patient um, wants to be screened... Like, let's suppose they weren't born in this country. Um, it, is that something that they can simply ask their doctor uh, that they want to be screened for, for sickle cell disease? Or is that something that really only comes to light after a crisis? So patients can ask their doctors to be screened for sickle cell. However, I think that the... The patients have to ask, which means they have to know about it um, um, and be educated about sickle cell disease. So the majority of patients, at least in my experience, are not asking to be screened for sickle cell disease. But the patients that I see who are in the African-American community, even when I see them unrelated for sickle cell disease, they have heard of sickle cell disease, um, but they have I've never been asked to, um, to screen a patient. Yeah. The the reason I ask is, of course, you know, if a patient comes into the ER uh, with um, 10 out of 10 pain, and the if the patient is able to verbalize that they do have sickle cell disease, it may increase the level of suspicion that the provider may have about a vaso-occlusive crisis and the need for adequate pain control and appropriate treatment. Um Whereas uh, if they are not able to um, give us that piece of information, that might be a bit of detective work on the part of the provider, right? Yeah, it certainly is. I, I definitely have had patients who have been to the ER several times, they not knowing that they have sickle cell disease and the providers not knowing that they have sickle cell disease. Um, and so they don't know why they have pain, but it's very rare pain crisis. And later on, when they are finally diagnosed, in retrospect, they think they look back and it actually, those were vaso-occlusive crises that the patients were having. But nonetheless, in terms of providers, even when providers do know a patient has sickle cell disease, we still know that pain is undertreated in this population, acute pain. Yeah. Aside from treating pain, however, how else is there other treatments for this vaso-occlusive crisis? I mean, because if we think about it, the reason why they're having pain is, as you said earlier, the red blood cells with this sickle shape uh, can't get through the blood vessels as well. And so they tend to block those blood vessels, uh, not allowing blood flow to uh, the rest of the, the body part, um, which then causes ischemia, um, which then causes pain. So are, are these treated with um, blood thinners? I, I mean, how do, we, how do we get to the root of, of fixing the problem? 
Mm-hmm. So this is actually a really exciting time right now in the treatment of sickle cell disease. Um, in the 1950s, we knew that hydroxyurea prevented or at least partially treated um, um, sickle cell disease, but it wasn't until the 1970s that the FDA approved sickle, uh, hydroxyurea as a disease-modifying therapy for sickle cell disease. And that hydroxyurea works by increasing the fetal hemoglobin. So the fetal hemoglobin is, is protective against sickle cell disease, against the um, against uh, the sickling of the red blood cells. So the higher the fetal hemoglobin, the more protection that the patient has. So from the 1970s until 2019, there was no other disease-modifying therapy for sickle cell disease. And then in 2019, there were three different medications approved, um, L-glutamine, which we're still not really sure how it works, but it allows the red blood cell to withstand, withstand toxic stress. There um, was oxbrida, which inhibits the polymerization of hemoglobin S, which basically means that it stops the hemoglobin from sticking together and causing the sickle red blood shell, cell shape. And then there is another medication, crizanluzumab, that's a P-selectin inhibitor, and that stops the white blood cells and red blood cells from all sticking together and from sticking to the blood vessels. And then more recently in clinical trials, not um, it's not FDA approved yet, but there's gene therapy and CRISPR. So there's a lot more medications or disease-modifying therapies coming down the pipeline that we should see in the coming years. Yeah, those are really exciting developments. We're going to pick up this conversation diving a bit more into those developments right after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about sickle cell disease and the care of bleeding and clotting disorders with my guest, Dr. Lila Van Doren. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers comes from Smilo Cancer Hospital where their prostate and urologic cancers program comprises a multi-specialty team dedicated to managing the diagnosis, evaluation, and treatment of urologic cancer. SmiloCancerHospital.org The American Cancer Society estimates that nearly 150,000 people in the U.S. will be diagnosed with colorectal cancer this year alone. When detected early, colorectal cancer is easily treated and highly curable, and men and women over the age of 45 should have regular colonoscopies to screen for the disease. Patients with colorectal cancer have more hope than ever before thanks to increased access to advanced therapies and specialized care. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and at Smilo Cancer Hospital, to test innovative new treatments for colorectal cancer. Tumor gene analysis has helped improve management of colorectal cancer by identifying the patients most likely to benefit from chemotherapy and newer targeted agents, resulting in more patient-specific treatment. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Lila Van Doren. We're talking about sickle cell disease and the care of bleeding and clotting disorders. And right before the break, Lila, you were mentioning that there's been a lot of new developments in terms of the treatment of, of sickle cell disease. You mentioned a number of medications um, that 
can help either prevent these red blood cells from forming a sickle cell shape or prevent them from glomming together in terms of the hemoglobin or increasing the fetal hemoglobin in these patients. So the one question that I have for you is, it sounds like all of those things would prevent a a vaso-occlusive crisis. Are these medications that patients who are diagnosed with sickle cell disease um, would take lifelong as prevention, or are these things that are more limited um, only after a crisis? How, how does that work in terms of those medications? Sure. So um, I will start by saying that the biggest barrier to patients taking these medications and being compliant is actually education. And so I spend a significant amount of time educating patients on the disease and how the disease process works and what it does to the body. And starting with hydroxyurea, This, everyone who has sickle cell disease should be on hydroxyurea. We know that it prevents end organ damage and it actually reduces mortality in patients and it's the longest um, FDA-approved medication for patients with sickle cell disease. So everybody should be on that and I place everybody on that. Now, when I say disease-modifying therapies, what we're trying to do is prevent the end prevent N-organ damage, prevent hemoglobin S polymerization as much as possible. So hydroxyurea does that by increasing the fetal hemoglobin. The next medication is Oxbrida that also prevents hemoglobin S polymerization just in a different way. So it doesn't increase the fetal hemoglobin. It causes increased binding of uh, oxygen to hemoglobin, and it shifts the disassociation curve to the left. So it mirrors more that of AA hemoglobin rather than S hemoglobin. That's how it prevents polymerization. So I put everyone on that medication as well. And the reason is because what I'm trying to do is prevent as much end organ damage as possible. So the least amount of sickling that a patient has the better that is overall at preventing organ damage. And then finally, the other uh, medication that I, I use quite a bit is called crizinluzumab. Now, that does not prevent hemoglobin S polymerization, and it really works more downstream. And the clinical trial that got that FDA approved showed that patients taking that medication had decreased pain crisis. And sometimes I use all three of these medications together in appropriate patients. And so, you know, you had mentioned before the break that um, at least in this country, um, there's screening for these hemoglobinopathies at birth. Um, and so are these medications that you would start people on as newborns and tell them to carry on taking for the rest of their lives? So when patients are newborn, we stop making fetal hemoglobin around six months to a year. And after that is when we start to see the hemoglobin S take over um, because fetal hemoglobin is protective, and that's why we start to see the sequelae. So as uh, Oxbrida, for example, I think is approved for children starting at age 14. It might be approved for younger children now, 
Um, but we start patients on disease-modifying therapy as early as possible. And there are oral solution forms for our hydroxyurea and uh, oxbrita as well. For L-glutamine, it's a powder that is mixed inside of some liquid substance and taken that way. So that brings me to the next question. You know, you had mentioned before the break that there are uh, disparities, right? There, There is bias. There, uh, These disorders tend to affect African-American populations. Um, one of the things that we think about in terms of African-American populations when we think about disparities is access to care um, and other social determinants that um, put them at you know, lower likelihood of being able to afford these medications. So are these all covered by insurance? Hydroxyurea is very cheap. I can't give you the dollar amount, but it's I, I've never had an insurance not cover hydroxyurea. As, for, as far as Oxbrida, so that generally is covered as well. However, the company Global Blood Therapeutics are now Global Blood Therapeutics and Pfizer, they do have programs for patients who have high copayments or for which the medication is not covered by an insurance. I have not yet come across an insurance that will not cover um, Oxbrida. And even if there is a high copayment, then like I said, the company has financial assistance for that. And then the other, the newer one as well, the map. I haven't come across that yet where patients cannot afford to be treated with these medications. Okay. Well, that's good to hear. So at least if, uh, if somebody is diagnosed with sickle cell disease, um, that cost really should not be an issue and that they should talk to their provider about what options might be available to them. Now, before the break, you were mentioning a couple of other therapies that we've heard about a little bit on this program, uh, Yale Cancer Answers, but maybe you can talk a little bit more about them in the context of sickle cell disease. And those two are, of course, gene editing and CRISPR. Um, so can you start off by defining what those are for our audience and and how they work in sickle cell disease? CRISPR is... Not is not new, um, but it's uh, pretty, I guess, new in the clinical world, uh, especially with sickle cell disease. So a lot of the um, trials now that are using CRISPR, really the goal is to turn on the fetal hemoglobin. So like I said, when we're about six months to a year old, our body stops making fetal hemoglobin, which is protective against sickle cell disease. And what we want to do is that switch is actually turned on at birth, meaning it turns off fetal hemoglobin production. And with CRISPR, what it goes it does, it goes in and, and edits the DNA. So that switch that's turned off, on, I'm sorry, is actually turned off and our bodies are allowed to produce fetal hemoglobin. So one of the genes that uh, certain CRISPR edits is called BCL11A gene. And that is turned off so that patients with sickle cell can produce fetal hemoglobin on their own without the need for hydroxyurea. Now we know in patients who naturally produce fetal hemoglobin, so that's called hereditary persistence of fetal hemoglobin, once the fetal hemoglobin is 
above 30%. It's basically as if the patient has sickle cell trait and they have no sequelae of sickle cell disease. And so that's really the goal of fetal hemoglobin is 30%. And um, when patients undergo CRISPR therapy and those who it works, it the fetal hemoglobin really, it, it does go above 30% and they have no further sequelae of sickle cell disease and their hemoglobin normalizes. So this brings me to a couple of questions. First, um, you know, when we think about natural biologic processes, there's often reasons why, you know, certain genes turn off at certain points in time and, and other genes turn on. Is there any sequelae to having 30% of fetal hemoglobin? If not, why is that gene turned off? Um, What was the the rationale behind that in the natural order of things to begin with? Um, That's a good question. So I do see patients who have, for example, instead of AA, which would be adult hemoglobin, have AF, so adult plus fetal hemoglobin. Um, hereditary persistence of fetal hemoglobin, and there really is no sequelae from that. And I'm not, I'm not sure why we were made that way for our fetal hemoglobin to turn off, um, or to, for our body to stop making fetal hemoglobin at birth. All right. Well, that's good to know. <laughs> so that brings me to the second question, which is, you know, if we think about these medications that you had talked about earlier. Um, which uh, allow uh, for persistence of fetal hemoglobin or at least prevent the sickling. And then we think about CRISPR as another uh, means of essentially doing the same thing, right? Increasing fetal hemoglobin so that um, the red blood cells are more malleable as they travel through the, the blood vessels. So patients may be asking, well, which is better? Uh, is one uh, going to yield a more persistent response? Certainly with CRISPR, it sounds like that's something that only needs to be done once rather than uh, ongoing as the medications are. Is that cheaper? Is that safer? What are the negative consequences to each way of going about doing this? And is there a preference? How do you think about those conversations when patients kind of ask you, well, doc, what do we do now? Hmm. So I'll first start by saying that the majority of patients with sickle cell living in this country are actually not cared for by hematologists. They're cared for by primary care doctors. And I think patients who live close or within an hour or so of a center that has sickle cell expertise are very fortunate. And these tend to be the patients who have access to the newer disease-modifying therapies and to CRISPR. So for example, adults with sickle cell disease uh, here in the Northeast, Columbia Medical Center is the only place in the Northeast who is enrolling patients with adults with sickle cell into these clinical trials, the CRISPR, and also does stem cell transplant for patients with sickle cell disease. So it's about having access. And patients don't always know what's available to them. And so it's up to the providers to let them know what is available. Now, if 
all of my patients could get um, CRISPR therapy, I would I would love for them to. But right now in clinical trials, not everybody is a candidate. So there are certain criteria, exclusion and inclusion that patients must meet. Now, when it comes to FDA approval of gene therapy and CRISPR, I think that it would probably be insurance dictating who can and cannot receive um, um, these very expensive therapies. Obviously, CRISPR would be a very expensive therapy. Um, and in terms of cost effectiveness over the lifetime, I'm not really sure what would be the most cost effective. I think it might be actually differ or different for each patient. So patients who have no chronic sequelae of the disease, who take their disease-modifying therapy and do just fine or never hospitalized, then maybe CRISPR is not the, you know, an option for them at that point in their life. But somebody who is having some sequelae of the disease, then despite being on disease-modifying therapies, I would definitely refer them for CRISPR. Dr. Lila Van Doren is an assistant professor of medicine and hematology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio. Funding for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by Smilo Cancer Hospital.